And I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 41. Psalm 41, our text, one of our uh, texts to help us in the book of Jude, our study, Psalm 41. And I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. Now that he lies down, he'll rise up no more. I should have whispered that, sorry. Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me, and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are still in the midst of our theology of the meal. Uh, I think I started off with a theology of food and then corrected myself last week that it really isn't the food that we're really concerned about as much as the meal, which you say, well, what's the difference? We eat food at meals, yes, but that is only one facet of your meal, and how do we transform mealtime into a time that is worship, that this was not... Uh, strange to biblical culture, but in fact very integral to it. We find it, as we saw from Genesis to Revelation, we talked about it pre-law, post-law, and uh, in the law. We can see it there prevalent in all three places that it mattered to God. Um, how we eat, to some extent what we eat, really from the beginning before there was sin, it mattered to God. Uh, you can eat of every tree of the knowledge, or every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. And so the first commandment that we're really confronted with that we could violate through commission was the commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so all the way from Genesis through Revelation, we have a lot of instruction on food, on meals. Uh, what we consume as acts of worship. And hopefully you will agree with me that when we are obedient to God, it is worship. 
that the act of obedience is what is involved in worship. We always think about worship as being the singing and testimonies, things like that. That's just one facet, and that's really only obedience to a few verses in Scripture that talk about doing that. Uh, there's actually more verses in Scripture that talk about your eating than your singing. Let that sink in on you a little bit. Particularly for the church. And so we have compartmentalized our lives that worship is only something we do in this realm and not in this realm or in all the realms of our life and really every facet of your life God calls you to worship him and this one is very particular because Jude takes the church to task and to warning saying look out for those who come in and eat with you though they are not with you they are willing to do this, and this is one of the most poisonous and destructive and heinous things that they do is they eat with us. You might say, what? That's the worst they can do? Um, yes, they put themselves in the exact same category that David talked about in Psalm 41 that, uh, again, pre mentions Judas doing it with Christ himself. You're putting yourself into that category of people of betrayers. So yes, it is listed for Jude as the really the first corporate facet of his description that he's going to go into several other descriptions. It is shared by Peter in 2 Peter, and we read that where it says that these people um, sit down and, and, and eat with you. But they are not with you they are not of you but they are presumptuous enough to sit down at your table and eat a meal with you as if they are in perfect fellowship with you and this is the key of what makes a meal worship is not necessarily what is consumed although maybe it does come into play it certainly occasionally does and and the bible does give even in the church age at least one directive that the that the Jerusalem church asked the Gentile church to maintain, that is, don't eat the blood because the life is in the blood. Um, that doesn't mean you can't have a rare steak because that really isn't blood at all. Um, but uh, um, when we talk about the consumption of our meal, it, it, we have always focused on the food, saying, well, we're free from the food laws. And I would agree with you that the Bible is very clear in that but you are not free from the meal laws, if you will. You are not free from making mealtime worship. You don't have that liberty to just say, I, I don't have to worry about doing this in a God-honoring fashion. The fact is you do. And, and that's what we're going to see both in Corinthians, in Romans, in Peter, in Jude, and as we read earlier in Psalm and many other Old Testament passages, uh, I hesitate to use all the Old Testament passages because so many of you say, well, that's under the law. Well, no. Some of them were before the law was ever given. Which speaks to the fact that even the ones after the law are worth our investigation and discovery. And so we're going to press this a little bit farther. Uh, we tried to practice that a little bit last week and we looked at the love feast and why it was so important to the church because this is the the mechanism that we use to describe the and to 
picture and to show the love of God that has been shared with us, that he has made provision and, and, uh, and uh, what was the other P word? I've left, lost it now. Anyway, that he has made the provision and the provision, that's what I just said, right? The provision, there's another P, what was it? Anyway, it'll come to me about 20 minutes from now, and if I yell out a word, that's why. It's the one, okay? So he, he has provided all of this as an act of love. And we call this spiritual food. And Christ Jesus says, if you don't eat of me, you are not of me. He uses this imagery because the mealtime is a very precious time, and it is our way of imaging a spiritual reality in this physical realm. And so it is important. And it is time that we um, got a little bit beyond the, the, the mundane and the simple of saying that we are free from the food laws of the Old Testament and we can eat whatever we want. And certainly that's where we're going to start. But hopefully we'll develop the idea and the recognition that God is still concerned about how we take sustenance, particularly as Christians and as a, as in a social setting, whether that, be, that society be simply your family um, or your church or even broader. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and its, and its application, its power, its, its uh, direction that we might know how we can please you, how we can glorify your name. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit might direct us, our thoughts and our considerations as we think of our ways and our patterns of behavior and where they've been derived from and what they are lacking in terms of what could be uh, magnificent opportunities to glorify you. And, Lord, we have spent too much time downgrading and and uh, downplaying so many aspects of worship that we have uh, limited really just to one place. And Lord, we know that that is not what pleases you. And so Lord, direct our thoughts this hour. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to begin right where I said we would begin this morning. We are going to begin with verse 9, it says, or verse 8, sorry, of chapter 8. It says, but food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. And so you might say, well, there it is, Pastor, in a nutshell. So it's not going to bring me near to God. And remember, what he's talking about isn't the meal. He's talking about the food of the meal. Specifically about which ones are you interested in eating. Are you going to eat meat that's been offered to idols or not? And that's really what had come up in the Corinthian church. And so let's just back up a little bit and just find out what we're really talking about here in the middle of the chapter. Where we want to say, well, food does not commend us to God. Whether we eat or don't eat isn't going to benefit or hurt us. Well, let's look at the issue, and then we're going to jump forward, because Paul spends like four chapters 
in Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Then he goes into it again in Romans. We're going to look at those. And so this isn't something that is, is a non-issue, but rather a critical one to him in corporate worship, in, in your family, uh, in your home, at the table. So let's back up to verse 1. It says, now concerning things offered to idols. That's what's really at play here. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know in our head that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there were, if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are all, whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now, eating it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Then the verse we read, jump down to verse 9, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Wow! All of a sudden, we went from the food doesn't matter to, you mean I'm sinning against Christ at mealtime? Yeah, all in one chapter, half a chapter. So obviously, we have an understanding of, of the issues here that it isn't really the food that is of concern, but it is the fact of the mealtime in which I am concerned about who I am eating with. I am involved in a society, a, a social gathering, and a meal is a social gathering. Should be, has always been. And whether that society is you and your TV or you and real people, um, you're, you and your computer, it is still a social gathering. Um, and so we find that, that of concern is not so much whether I believe I have the right to eat this or not, um, but I am now concerned about my society, those that I am eating with or perhaps that I'm not eating with that are watching me eat. Not only what I'm eating, but where I'm eating. You notice in here it says they see you eating at the temple of another god. Do we have such things? Are there places to eat that are temples to other gods that we have in our community? Of course there are. Okay, I don't know what you think, but I'm pretty sure every sports bar is a temple to sports. Just as much as I think, you know, we have the, the state-sponsored church downtown there that uh, your tax dollars pay to support and promote the religion of evolution. Um, they call it a museum, but it's a church, okay? There's no natural history in there. It's the unnatural history of uh, atheism. 
So that was extra for free. Now, if I see you eating at a sports bar, am I going to come up and say, oh, I can't believe it. I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to deny Christ. I'm going to go off into oblivion. No, why? Because I'm a mature Christian. And I recognize you have the liberty to eat there and to consume that food there without necessarily having um, those recognized as gods and really just dis- dis- ignoring them or having them as, a, as a, not a deity in your life. Um, but that doesn't mean everyone's going to be in that condition. And this is what Paul's referring to. That our concern isn't about the exercise of my liberty. The concern is about my love for the brethren. And no place has this come out stronger than in Galatians. Perhaps the strongest book of the Bible to declare liberty. We have our liberty. But you get into Galatians a little bit farther and you find out in chapter 5 that, wait a minute, your liberty does have a boundary. There is a fence. And that fence for the Christian isn't just a, a little, you know, thing to just step over. Um, we're talking about a fence that's like something that they want to build at the border. You know, something that's, that we never want to cross. It's electrified. It's got razor wire at the top. It is five feet thick concrete fence that surrounds our liberty. And that fence is the love of God. Now suddenly we begin to, oh, love feast. Fence, that's our fence. We're not going to violate that. That means when I sit down for a meal, I am considerate and alert to those around me. I'm not just seeking my own interests, but I'm concerned about those around me. And so the more public your life is, the more the fence looms. Because more people are watching you. You come into church here, and you say, well, I have the liberty to this, that, and I'll say, sure you do. But you're sinning against Christ. Because you don't care what effect your exercise of your liberty has on the person sitting behind you, beside you, in front of you. I've been in a church that was like that. In my internship, I was in one of those in Michigan, and they were so forceful about exercising their liberty that they didn't even recognize how much they offended. And so they were sinning against Christ himself is what Paul says here. Because if you are sinning against this child of God, you're sinning against God. And he goes through this. So yes, the food you have, there's no benefit and no, um, no curse if you, whether you want to participate in this or that um, in terms of mealtime, but in terms of your relationship with the love of God, it matters greatly. What am I communicating?
And so if you invite a Jewish friend over, are you really going to serve him ham? Or are you going to be a little more sensitive than that? Even if they're non-practicing. So it is that we consider others. And mealtime is the place we learn that. It is perhaps one of the most precious places where we learn to consider others. And so we recognize that if there are eight people at the table and there are barely eight portions of food on that table, that I'm going to be limiting myself. I'm not going to pile up my plate because it happens to be next to me first. Because I've looked around and I go, oh, they must not be expecting all of us. Or they just don't have the money, or they don't have the means. Whatever. I'm going to be considerate of others. And our statement is, just take this much, and then you can always have more if there's stuff left over. Because at a feast, remember, the feast isn't about overeating, it's about everyone being satisfied. Do you realize that you can sustain life without being full at the end of every meal? Just want to let you know that, Okay. Americans don't realize that because we feast every meal. We eat till we're satisfied. But the fact is you can sustain life without being satisfied at every meal. It can happen. If Christ could survive fasting for 40 days, um, I'm pretty sure you could make it one or two meals without having a, a completely full tummy at the end of the meal. But a feast is always designated as a time when you are fully satisfied at the end. So is a love feast. Did anyone walk away last Sunday not having eaten enough? Because if you did, it was your own fault because the table was still full when we left. I think we could have fed everyone again for supper out of that same bounty. And so Paul here in this passage that talks about the fact that food does not commend us to God, recognize that what is of concern, even in our knowledge, even in our maturity, is that we are considerate of our brother. One of the things that is precious about mealtime and why it is such an intimate time is because we are all at one table looking at each other and participating in the same activity. And there should be fellowship. It should be sweet. Let's go on ahead in 1 Corinthians. Because we have to keep revisiting this in chapter 10. Pick up verse 14. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we are partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship 
with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And that's the second time he's brought up the edification, which we're going to investigate a little further. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience's sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and it's all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience's sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience's sake. For the earth is the Lord and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other person. For why? Is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And again, Paul reiterates that the fullness of the earth is the Lord's, and when Noah came out of the ark, God says, of all these you may freely eat, even of all flesh. You can freely eat. And he commanded him to do so. And so we recognize that it's all the Lord's, and so the Lord provides the rain and the soil and the crop and we bring it in and we consume it and so that's not really the issue paul isn't really touching on the food laws per se he's really back to the idea of meal time as fellowship time who and what are you fellowshipping with what is the central theme of my dinner table is the central theme the food and so I should take pictures of the food and share it on social media. Here's my plate of food. Ooh, and everyone's going. And how many of you really enjoy plates of food on your Facebook site or other social media, Instagram? A couple of you. It just makes me hungry. How dare they? I hadn't eaten lunch that day, and there they are. They got to say, oh, I'm at this restaurant. I got this. And we've done it too, so I'm as guilty as you guys. Um, we're on vacation. It's like, here we are. I wish you were here. Actually, what they mean is, ha, you're not here, I am. That's what they really mean. But we say, wish you were here. They weren't thinking of you when they were eating that meal. So what is the mealtime about? It's not about the plate of food. It's about the fellowship. He says, you can eat this stuff, you know, you can eat things and, and what you eat isn't critical at the mealtime, um, but it is the testimony of the fellowship. And can you have a fellowship with demons? So if you go in and you don't ask and don't ask, don't tell, um, 
I know that's associated with the military and homosexuality, but you walk down and some unbeliever asks you to meal, you're allowed to go eat with them, please do. Um, but if they sit down there and they are starting to rehearse all the great things about offering this stuff to idols and they re re rehearse before you their paganism, polytheism, whatever. Bible says at that point you fold your hands and set that at the table and say, I can't eat that. Because what you've described to me isn't God. And we take that very opportunity by not eating to make a declaration of faith. No, I'm not, I don't worship that God. I love in the movie uh, and you don't hear me say this very often. I don't like to use movies as my illustrations. But uh, in the, uh, and I think it's a true story because the movie is depicting a real life. Um, I can't remember the name of the movie, so I'll get there. Um, Jason Orr, who was a defensive player, no, offensive lineman. Uh, Michael Orr, what did I say? Blindside, there we go. Whew. It's just not that critically important to me to remember titles of movies and names of these. Thanksgiving dinner. First Thanksgiving with his new family, and they take their restaurant-bought food and have three TVs going so they can watch all the sports. And they all plop down the couches, and Michael Orr goes over and sits down at the dinner table. Alone. What was he communicating? It's Thanksgiving. It isn't about the food, and that isn't my God. That isn't fellowship. And of course, mom sees that and turns off all the TVs because she really is in charge in that home. Um, <clears throat> and she turns off all the TVs. Everybody's upset until they realize, oh, Yeah, that would probably be a better tradition. Now we have true fellowship. We have an opportunity to be thankful, and they all go and sit around the table with him, and somehow in the midst, the store-bought food turned into home-cooked food. I don't know how that happened, but it's Hollywood, so those kind of things, wonderful things can occur. What a great declaration. This is a meal of something more substantial. And when we set aside a meal, calling it a feast, it's even more substantial than the normal meals. Now we begin to grasp why Jude is so concerned about who you're letting sit down and pretend they are one of you at mealtime in the love feast of the church. Because they have a very different philosophy, a very different motive for doing so. And here, we are told that, yeah, it does matter. Your testimony is what matters. Your fellowship matters. And how am I edifying others while I am participating in this event? And oh, that we would saturate our lives with that kind of thinking. How am I edifying others in this activity? Not just eating it, because remember in the verse it says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do it to the glory of God. Well, what glorifies God is not just your personal worship with your liberty, but it is your act of service. It is edification of the saints. How can I edify them? And the word edification is to build up. How do I encourage, strengthen them? How do I engage them and use this activity of my home, this activity of our church, to strengthen the faith, to instruct it, to build it up, to, to empower it? How do we use these things? And, and when our minds start working like that, our approach to common things of life, to the mundane things of life, is to enrich them. How do I do that? Well, Paul says, sometimes it's by not eating. It's by folding your hands, putting them on your lap, and saying, I can't eat with you now. Because there's a difference between you and me, and you've declared your faith in demons, and you call them gods, but they're demons. And I want you to know that I only have one, is the one true and living God. And now you're in their home, their guest, and you have an opportunity to share your faith. How will it go over? Depends. They might respond by faith believing. They might be offended and throw you out, never invite you back. Um, but you have that opportunity to share your faith. This matters to me. The issue, again, comes up in Romans, and let's go to Romans 14. Again, it's about the Lord's giving us liberty, that we are not to judge another, and he goes through that. Um, and very uh, similar to his statements in 1 Corinthians, which shouldn't surprise us, I want to pick up in verse 5. It says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, does not, uh, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then... Each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy 
in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So what is it that we are promoting at our mealtime, at our family mealtime? And for our, we only have one meal a day that's the family mealtime in my house, and that's the supper hour. The other ones aren't family mealtimes. They are individuals. So as you get up, you get breakfast and move along your way. And lunchtime, people are coming there in different places at work or here or there. Um, but supper, that's our family meal. We have one family meal a day. And uh, the other ones, you're on your own. There's food in the house, and if you, you can figure it out. But uh, whether it's that one meal a day, one special meal a week, or whether it's that one design meal called the love feast, that one special meal a year, like Thanksgiving coming up, whatever that meal is for you, Passover for the Jewish community, the, the, their Paschal. And so we have these opportunities, and what are we communicating in them? We are supposed to be taking these events as an opportunity to develop what? Righteousness, peace, and joy. These are the things of the kingdom of God. Where did I get that from? I got that right there from verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. We're not talking about you being uh, a child of God and, and, and understanding liberty and all that. What we're talking about is ministering. What kind of things? You're ministering righteousness. You are ministering peace. Are we ministers of peace at the dinner table? And so we invoke that, and we are um, also ministers of joy, it says in the Holy Spirit. God intends your mealtime to be worshipful, and we're, we often, we, we too many times associate worship with song. This is worship. No, this is worship. Joy. You can enjoy the meal and still glorify God in it. In fact, I don't think you can glorify God if you're not enjoying it. Guess what? The kid that's complaining about the food on his plate is behaving unrighteously and needs to be corrected. And yes, some of your kids have been at my table and been corrected for being unrighteous at the table, for destroying the joy of the one that prepared the meal and served the meal. It had to be corrected. It said, no, we have good food in this house. You're going to eat what you've been served, and you're going to eat it happily. And they're, they, they found a side of my wife that they never knew existed because it doesn't show up in Joy Club or in Sunday school. But at the table, it's there. Because this is a place of righteousness, of peace, of joy. And this is the place to instruct in it, in this fellowship. And you cannot do that if you have no interest in whether you've offended anyone else there. Why does a child come and say, eh, at the food? Because they're not thinking of mom or dad or auntie or whoever fixed the food. Who are they thinking about? Just themselves. And that is unrighteousness. And in selfishness, there is never peace. And in self-centeredness, there is never joy. We are using the table to minister righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. 
It is an instructional table. And our children very quickly learned that if you don't want to be a very hungry person for the rest of your life, as short as it's going to be, because you're not going to be able to eat anything, you come to the table, and whether you like it or not, whether your palate enjoys it or not at this stage in your life, because your palate changes. Did you know that? You develop taste for certain things, and uh, uh, there are, and that change over your life. There are things I eat today that I would never have eaten as a kid, and um, that's my wife's fault because she just keeps fixing the stuff. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I enjoy it. Um, just because their palate isn't appreciated yet doesn't mean they have the right to offend. We understand this in our core, and yet we fail to instruct in it. Why is the presentation of your presence at the table important in a timely fashion, in a, in a joyful fashion, in a peaceful fashion, in a righteous fashion? Because that's what this table is all about. You come to there begrudgingly, you make us call you 17 times, and you, won't, and you make everyone sit there and wait for you. You're communicating something. What are you communicating? Is it righteous? No, it's selfishness. I didn't care about everyone else to show up on time to the table. I was in my own thoughts. Whatever the excuse, ultimately you weren't thinking of others. And what Paul here communicates is that, yes, as we come to any table, any mealtime, we recognize I am here in a fellowship. I am here to edify. How do I build you up? I want to encourage you and strengthen you in righteousness, in peace, and in joy. That that ought to characterize our mealtime together. And for young children, middle-aged children, and some, many times, not sometimes, many times, even older children, and sadly, even for adults, we have to educate them. Don't make me call you twice. Why? Because we are edifying and we are considering others. And when I consider others, I am going to think about the fact that there are other people that are apparently more hungry than me, that are waiting on me. There is a person there that has worked as a loving act of service to prepare this food, and I want to be considerate of their feelings and of the effort and the, and the demonstration of their love that they've shown me in this. And so I'm going to show up. I'm going to be timely. I'm going to have a smile on my face. I'm going to be ready to engage in conversation because I'm not going to be self-absorbed because that's not righteous. It is not the way of peace, and there is no joy there. And James tells us what comes out of self-interest, every evil thing. That's what James says. I love that verse. And so we have an opportunity to edify, to instruct, to build up. Now, in the last eight minutes, and you could tell I was ready to go a lot farther than this. I spent way too much time on this so far. In the last eight minutes, what happens when you have someone destroying that? Whose purpose at the table is the opposite. Let there be no mistake. The hidden rock at your love feast's purpose is the opposite of what these verses have just said. 
their objective is not to edify, but to tear down. Their purpose is not to breed righteousness, but unrighteousness. Not to bring peace, but division. Not to encourage joy, but to bring discontentment. Not to be helpful of others, but to use others for their own interests. And such people come and eat at our table and put the false smile on, not the true one, not the genuine-hearted one that we so desperately want from those who share our meals, but rather they come in with the false. And Jude describes them as spots. Peter more of spots. Jude describes them more of the hidden rocks, rocks under the surface, just waiting to make things miserable. Such a one was Judas. He was there all the way through. All through Jesus' ministry, he was there. From very early on, he was there when Jesus sent people out two by two, his disciples out two by two, to go into the surrounding communities and to heal the sick and to cast out demons and, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. Judas was one of them. Don't think that these rocks aren't really good at pretend, at appearing like they're the genuine article, that they are shown immediately. There are, unless you pass over certain parts of the ocean, you could never know the reef is there. David in Psalm 41 recounts that here he is sick and here is someone who he has eaten with, who has shared my table, who has eaten of my bread, and they're the ones going around wanting me dead. And let us understand that that is the interest of the rock, of the hidden rock of the spot in the love feast. They are not interested in you at all, except to destroy. Ultimately, they are there to do injury and damage because all they are really interested is me and mine. When we encounter that, we hopefully we are recognize it and we're mature enough to say, get out! Not because I'm necessarily in danger. Not just because you hurt my feelings a little bit. It is much more substantial than that because you have acted in such a manner that demonstrates you care nothing about the family of God. You only care about you and yours. Get out! Why? Not because I'm worried about me losing my salvation. I'm concerned about the weakest among us, the ones who maybe look to you as some kind of spiritual leader. You just destroyed them in a minute because of your own pride. They are the worst. They are the Judas. And they eat with you. Why do you think Paul in Corinthians says, don't even eat with such a person? Because they're destructive in their nature. 
For they have turned from desiring to serve God by serving others to only being interested in me and mine. And yes, they can be in places of authority. They can be amongst us for years and then disclose themselves. That's what Jude was dealing with. These people were in places of authority. But they were really only interested in themselves. And finally, it comes out, and Jude says, oh, when they come out, get them out. Not for your sake, for the sake of the body of Christ. How big of a rock do you need? Yesterday morning, I had the joy at 5 a.m. To, ha- to go and deal with fighting goats in the dark. And in my halfway, and if any of you know me, you know that at 5 a.m. I'm not really a person. And so I'm putting my boots on, I'm running out there, and about to top it all off, there's a little rock in my boot. So I'm, you know, you got the thing, oh, that hurts, and every step hurts. And I'm shaking it, trying to get it somewhere where it doesn't hurt while I'm trying to corral goats and deal with, separate them and all these things. I finally just stop and pour out the, you know how big that rock was? It was like this little tiny thing. It wasn't a rock. It wasn't even a pebble. It was like just sharp sand. It doesn't take much bring discomfort to the people of God to destroy peace and joy and righteousness. And when these that undermine it are sitting at our table presuming look at that. Let's go back to Jude very quickly. I'm going to go a little late. I'll have to stretch this in next week, tomorrow. I'd love tomorrow. I'd love to be daily meeting with you guys, but Verse 12, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are fearless in coming in amongst us. They are presumptuous. They come in and and act like they belong. When in reality, they're only really thinking of me and mine. Peter goes on and describes that they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. So there they are sitting and <laughs> I've got my own agenda, I've got my own interests. They're carousing in it while they're eating with you. It's a facade. And all the while, all they're really concerned about is me and mine, and me and mine, and me and mine, and me and mine. And it is damaging. It destroys righteousness, joy, and peace in the family of God. Where's the fellowship? What fellowship are you communicating? And when you communicate that you have fellowship with Judas, 
what are you telling Jesus? Are you free to have supper with Judas? Absolutely. Recognize what you're telling Jesus. David says, this one ate my own bread and now wants me dead. I'm sick and they're glorying over it. The church is hurting, sometimes because of the very, the very rock that caused it, and instead of having any concern about it, they're gloating over it. And you want to have fellowship with that? Rightly does Paul say, you're having fellowship with demons. What fellowship does a child of God have with demons? For it is... These are only interested in their own devices, in their own pleasures, in their own interests, in their own deceptions, it even says. What a powerful declaration to revel in your own deceptions. Just smugly sitting there, knowing who and what you are, and looking with disgust on everyone else because they don't know. And they're eating at your table. Yes, your meal matters. Why do we concern ourselves so much with who eats with us? Why does it matter? Because the supper table is the place of edification. Even as you eat to strengthen and build your body, your fellowship at that table is there to strengthen and build your faith. If we are sharing that table with those that would destroy it, we are singing against Christ. We are eating with Judas. We are not talking about, in this whole conversation, about the world. We're talking about those who call themselves by Christ's name. We're not, you invite the world to your table and you have a purpose and that is to minister the gospel to them and build that relationship with them and you'll never ever hear me speak against that. But you bring into your family, into your table, into your life those who have demonstrated themselves as willingly and to deceive and to damage the church, whether it's this church or another church, then you are sinning against Christ. For you've offended your brother. As deeply as those that were caught in idolatry were saved out of it and cannot conceive how you could go eat there and eat that food. They want to walk away from Christ because of it. Are you giving your brethren cause for further injury by entertaining these who only care about themselves? It matters who we eat with.
For the word fellowship implies equal desired relationship with God. Whether they are mature or immature, they desire a relationship with God by serving others and recognize that we are here to minister reconciliation one to another. So yes, when we have spots in our love feast, it is of grave concern. But the damage can be extensive. And maybe it won't injure you. But that's not all we're here to think about, is it? We're here to consider one another above ourselves. And this, my friends, is the love of God. The love that is the wall around our liberty. It causes us to consider our ways, even the way we eat. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love and abounding grace toward us. Thank you for a warning. that we do not join and become a spot, a blemish, a hidden reef by disregarding others and thinking only of ourselves, for therein the deception begins. We pretend to serve others while only really pushing our own agenda. Lord, guard us, guard our hearts and lives from such powerful influences as our own pride and arrogance. And Lord, we pray you might guard our church. That we might be glorifying to you. Because we were careful to consider every part of our life in terms of our testimony and how we can build up one another, encourage and strengthen to edify. Lord, give us this wisdom that is beyond knowledge. We know we are free. Give us the wisdom to recognize there is a wall of love around that contains that liberty. We might in loving service. Multiply the love you've shown us. And Lord, we do pray that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we might bring you the glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.